Hey there. The holidays are here, so it's good to know Fred Meyer can save you some time with free pickup on all your fresh favorites. Whether your traditions call for a hearty helping of juicy ham, ample apple pie, or Aunt Sue's legendary twice-stuffed stuffing, Fred Meyer has got you covered. So order for free pickup at fredmeyer.com or the app and get more time to get your holiday on when you grab your groceries curbside. Fred Meyer, fresh for everyone. Free pickup on orders of $35 or more. Restrictions may apply. Welcome to the Everyday Mindfulness Show, the off-the-cuff exploration of everyday aha moments and life experiences. Join a cast of over 70 uniquely brilliant individuals. Each week, Mike Domish and an eclectic mix of cast members and special guests will engage in mindful and lively conversations about everything from meditation to spirituality to personal passions to successes and failures to relationships to the stuff that makes up the moments of our daily lives. Let's get started with your host, author, speaker, provocateur, and a bit of a goofball, Mike Domish. One of our amazing sponsors this week is Zen Parenting Radio. Zen Parenting Radio podcast combines self-awareness and mindfulness with pop culture and humor to expand compassion for ourselves, each other, and the world. Join my friends Kathy and Todd at zenparentingradio.com. Before we dive into this week's episode, I just want to give you a little heads up that this week's guest is incredible and amazing. And every now and then in the background, you hear some music. I just want you to be aware of to to let that go. We're going to say that being part of the mindfulness is that we're going to be able to say, I hear that. I'm going to let that go because Ida's brilliance is so incredible. I didn't want to do anything to deter you from being able to get this brilliance and saying, well, let's record another time. I wanted to get this to you. So yes, I heard it a couple times too. You might hear it. I'm going to ask you to be aware, let it go and just really focus on Ida's words. They're so brilliant. And right now we're going to get into introducing this week's show. Hi, I'm your host, Mike Thomas, and thrilled to be here for a special one-on-one interview for the Everyday Mindfulness Show this week's episode. And we have a very special guest, Ida Vazine, who's going to tell you all about herself. And we're going to dive into some great conversations here. And remember, you can learn all about Ida at our website at theeverydaymindfulnessshow.com. And take out the the, just everydaymindfulnessshow.com. We'll have links to Ida. We'll have links to information on Ida, interviews, everything you could ever want at that website. Right now, let's get to meeting Ida. Ida, thank you so much for joining us here today. We're thrilled to have you on the show. Could you tell everyone a little bit about yourself? Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm based in Orange County, California. I pretty much grew up here. I have a private practice. I'm a marriage and family therapist. I specialize with mindfulness as the base and the core of the work that I do. And I do it in... Um, in different ways, uh, either working in stress management or working with couples as well as first-generation immigrants and their families that are adapting here to the United States. And that's a specialty of yours, cultural dynamics and mindfulness. So you could dig a little more into there. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit about your personal background and what brought you into that conversation about cultural dynamics and mindfulness? Definitely, because, well, I'm a first-generation immigrant myself, too. I came here as a, as a young child. I grew up here, 
And I noticed that I was growing up with two different worlds, the world at home and then the world of school and media and friends and society. And I was like, okay, well, that the difference was very big. And I started paying a lot of attention to it. Actually, in my studies, I also studied cultural anthropology and sociology as well as psychology because I felt like it gave a better idea of a whole person because culture was such a big deal. My upbringing, one of the things that was very important for my family is for me to learn, you know, my cultural history and the background and the language and reading it and writing it. And so it's like I'm getting history lessons on the side at home, aside from, you know, U.S. history and, and world history and all that kind of stuff where I was getting at school. So there, there was always this one extra part in my upbringing, which I found was very similar to other first-generation immigrants of different backgrounds and very different for those who were not first-generation immigrants. So it was quite the contrast and it showed. And that's where I believe mindfulness started coming into play with it as well, because if, if one's not very mindful of what's going on, what the influencing factors are, who you're answering to, who you're living for, then one can go forward in life just oblivious to who they are and who their core is. And so that's where my specialty really started growing in that aspect. And you bring up something really important because a lot of people are almost built to follow and not question. Yes. And so they're put into systems, cultural systems, where it's my job to follow this. And at a young age, you made it a difficult choice to make a change of what path you want to follow spiritually that sort of broke away from, even if it was your choice, your family gave you choice, it was still away from what they had thought you would do. It was based on your mindfulness by what you shared in the past that, so I'm gonna let you describe that. You, mindfulness allowed you to see something that you wanted to go a different path with. Could you share a little bit about that? Growing up here, growing up in a Christian nation, right? So there's, it's everywhere, it's everywhere. It's in media, it's in school, it's with your friends, it's it's everywhere. And then at home, I grew up in a bi religious home as well, which was uh, Islam as well as the Baha'i faith. And then there's a big clash there. So according to Islam, you know, it's supposed to be the last Abrahamic religion. According to the Baha'i faith, it's a continuation of the Abrahamic religion. Now I have the Holy Trinity that I'm working with, right? And um, I'm like, okay, well, you know, they're all Abrahamic religions. The, according to themselves, I, I don't want to like speak one way or another. And so I remember at first were, my family was like, no, you have to grow up with the Islamic faith. And then they're like, no, you have to grow up with the Baha'i faith. And then they're like, and then I started getting really confused because then I, I go out there and it's all about, you know, Jesus Christ. And I'm like, oh, okay, this is great. And Christmas, and, but I couldn't have Christmas because, you know, at first it wasn't part of what we we're allowed to have. And my family did grow open to that, thank goodness, at some point. But then they're like, okay, she's getting really confused and a little conflicted there. So then they're like, okay, well, we'll just go ahead and teach you both perspectives. And then when you reach junior high kind of age, you're going to go ahead and pick whatever path you want yourself. And so I'm like, okay, all right, that works. It definitely brought a lot of questions in mind as well for me because I'm like, okay, well, there's so much conflict between these different religions, but they're all saying the same thing. Like I, I would go to a mosque. I would go to like Baha'i classes and temples and I would go to church and I would listen to the words and prayers and, and I would learn the different 
practices. I even had a lot of Jewish friends. So I even learned like, you know, bracha prayer for like uh, Friday night Sabbath and, uh, you know, went to Jewish temples and stuff like that. So I was like, I was just really curious. I'm like, so what's the big deal here? Why is everything so different when there's so much similarity? And I realized I'm like, okay, it's a beautiful path and principle to follow, whichever one speaks to your heart. And I realized I'm like, okay, maybe religion and religious practices aren't for me. I, some of the things that I liked about religion, I like the ceremonies and I like the rituals that religion has to offer in general. I think it's very grounding. I think there's a psychological benefit and importance to all of it, as well as physiological importance as well. And, and not to mention, you know, just a family orientation, all those kind of things. These are all really, really, really important and being a good person and all these kind of things, value systems. And then I was like, okay, well, I'd, I'd like to explore some more. So then I started uh, looking into Eastern philosophy. So, you know, uh, like Sufism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Zoroastrianism. And I was like, okay, so they're pretty much all saying the same thing, like be a good person, but be mindful of what you're doing. Be a good person, but it's okay to go through human experiences such as trial and error and learning experiences, you know, it's, so it took that feeling of I'm a sinner, I did something wrong to, okay, I experienced this, what did I learn from it, which way do I want to, what feels good, what doesn't. Take away shame and embrace humanity, you know, just a, being a human being, a curious, experiential human being. Yeah, and, and at the time, that was a difficult thing for you to do because your parents thought you were going to pick one or the other. They, it sounds right. like they didn't see you coming back saying, no, I'm neither. <laughs> so, uh, right. so when that happened and you, you've shared it in, in other forms that, that it, you know, it took time, but this is a great example of a term you referred to as culturally confused. You said it earlier that we have so much in common yet they're bad and almost cultures are battling, even though there's so much in common. Can you explain what you mean by that cultural confusion? So then it was very clicky at school because there were, you know, the different cliques. Like I'm, I'm a Middle Eastern Iranian background and I didn't grow up around other Iranians. So I was pretty much the only one. Then there were like other Middle Eastern, like the Arabs and then uh, different Asian backgrounds like Vietnamese, Korean, Chinese, and then the Hispanic background. And then you kind of like look at them and you're like, oh, wow. OK, so everyone's kind of into their own group. They can all speak a different language other than English and they all understand it. And it was a little bit of an exclusive kind of clicky experience. And so I'm sitting there from this observer stance and I was like, okay, well, let me, let me go say hi to this group and let me go say hi to that group and let me go say hi to this group. And the more I talk to people, the more I'm like, oh my gosh, we all have very similar backgrounds. And oh yeah, our parents all operate the same and our families all operate the same minor nuances were different, like specific cultural practices or specific uh, religious practices. But they all had had it going on there. Like, oh, you have to, you know, the family name is really important. You have to go do this. You have to do that. One term that almost everybody has heard, uh, first generation immigrant, you become too Americanized. And it's like, okay, so as a, as a young kid, you're like, you hear it and you're like, okay. And then, but then you start growing up, you're like, but that's a good thing. I'm growing up here. That's a good thing. That's called ad adaptation. And it's like, well, why did our families come here for, you know, a better life and more prosperity? And then like, you know, give us a hard time when we're adapting, you know? So it was, it was a really kind of hard experience to go back and forth with. And I don't think anyone was very mindful of the, the little, seeds that were being planted in, in all of us. I don't think anyone was really mindful of like, there's a, there's a 
minor internal conflict. You know, um, I have like friends, you know, they'll call themselves, you know, like bananas, you know, I'm yellow on the outside, but white on the inside or coconut, I'm, you know, brown on the outside or white on the inside. But it's just, it's still a, a differentiation. There's still a separation. I noticed a similar experience when I was in college, they were redesigning the student union and I was asked to be on a, like a feedback committee on this. And they're talking about how right now, culturally, everybody sits in their own areas. Now this is 26 years ago or 28 years ago. And how can we change that? And somebody brought up a brilliant point. Like you can create areas to designate, to be more integrative and all. But the fact is, if I identify as a certain community and there's that community in that corner, I'm going to where it's safe. I'm going to that corner. So you can mm-hmm. do your nice little, here's our little cooperative, integrative environment. I'm going back to my safe space. It's not going to matter. You have to change the experience to make me not want to go over there so that everywhere I feel welcome, so that everywhere you have to change the cultural understanding, which is a mindfulness topic of how do we teach people to be mindful of this cultural awareness so they're not falling into the trap. All cultures of whatever trap they're falling into. Uh, We see this a lot politically. We see it a lot uh, across the country right now in the United States. I'm just going to pause this for one second because I want to let everyone listening know about one of our amazing sponsors. And that's the book, Yes Means Yes, an introduction to consent and boundaries by Christine Babinick. Yes Means Yes is for our youngest readers and takes one of the most basic tasks of childhood, learning to ask for permission, and applies to consent and healthy boundaries. Available on Amazon, Yes Means Yes, an introduction to consent and boundaries. What are ways you do that? What are ways that you help someone in their life be aware of cultural safety they're running to or falling back to versus saying, no, what about instead of safety? I come from this from from a mindfulness. What am I learning from this? What am I opening myself up to? How do you teach that? Well, I think I, I, I definitely target a little bit of an older population because um, at that point, their power to choose is a lot stronger than when they're younger children in their families because because of that tight knit aspect of being in their families, being in their cultures and whatnot. And uh, exactly through mindfulness and, and bringing up talking, uh, bringing up certain uh, questions and talking points like, hey, how was it like growing up? Oh, you know, my mom was really strict on me for this or that. Was it the same for you or did your parents give you a hard time if you wanted to go on a date or have a sleepover or go to this kind of concert and, and whatnot? You know, just start bringing it up in a way like saying like, hey, you know, it kind of it was a little confusing sometimes. There's a lot of pressure sometimes. And when you bring it up, then all of a sudden someone can be like, yeah, I can really relate to that. So you start with first talking about it because not talking about it will just keep patterns repeating any any kind of patterns. So when you talk about it, you bring awareness to it, which is the mindfulness. Once you bring awareness to it, then you can you can create a scramble of the pattern and then reprogram to a new pattern. That's, that's the power of mindfulness and the power of choice that comes from mindfulness. Then uh, all of a sudden, like, you know, these young adults uh, realize, okay, I'm so capable in so many areas and who have I been living for this whole time? What have I been going for? Cause I always ask that question. Why are you doing this? What about this is important to you? What made you go this profession or live in this place or want to go do this one activity or eat this specific food or um, get married and have children? Like, 
are you doing it or is it because your family's telling you you're, you're supposed to do it or because society said that this is what you're supposed to do? What, like, are you paying attention to your internal impulses, your internal guide, your, your internal instinct or intuition, you know, depending on what background you come from, however you want to look at it. Who are you listening to? What are you listening to? What do you want? And when it really comes down, you ask them, what do you want? A lot of people uh, are left with a question mark because yeah. at first they can go ahead and say, oh, yeah, but this is what I want. I'm like, really, is that what you want? Yeah. And what I love about what you're saying there is what are you listening to? What? And I think a question that falls right in line with that is what if, what programming is running the, the machine right now in your head, right? People call them anything from idea making to excuse making to story making. Mm -hmm. What programming is running the story, right? So is it your programming or is it the way you were raised and that programming is still running the show? Do you have your own programming? And if you do, how are you aware of when it's your own programming versus cultural programming versus parental programming? And what I love about the questions you said there, Ida, was this idea of, Two grown adults at 30, 40, or 50 saying, what do your parents teach you about dating? It's safe, right? Because it's not, what are you teaching your kids about dating? Because when you have that question, people feel like, oh, am I, am I doing the wrong thing? Is this about to be judgment? Oh my gosh, yeah. Right, yeah. but what yeah. did your parents teach you? It's like, oh, that's safe to talk about. That's not me, right? And so, because it's not us, we think it's safe, but we're about to reveal us without noticing it. We're revealing the programming we got. Now, we might have denied that programming and be programmed very differently today. But it, we can then have that conversation, actually, right? Oh, but actually, I don't follow what my parents taught or this or that. And it reveals more stories that allow us to really sort of open up who that is inside there, what's going on inside there. Right. And that's the mindfulness journey right there. Yeah. Yeah, which is so much fun. And how, how has your mindfulness journey evolved? You shared already with us as a young person that how mindfulness came in very important for you to decide in your spiritual journey. How has it evolved for you since that time and in your profession and what you do? So your day-to-day -day and what, how you use it. Oh, my day-to-day. -day. I mean, I use it in everything I do. I use it in uh, the food choices I make and the places that I'm going to go visit. So let's the pause. People... I want to pause there. Food choices. What's the mindfulness? Because a lot of people struggle with this. What's a mindfulness question that you will ask yourself during a food choice? Or prior During, to a food choice. Oh, yeah. So, so it's it's the same process. It's the same process. As soon as I have an impulse to have a certain food, I I pause. I pause, and that's that mindfulness pause right there. Okay, why why am I eating this? Is it because I'm hungry? Is it because I have a craving? Is it because I just had some emotional experience and I need it? I'm tying it to some emotion because I've had this food before, so I know how my body reacts to it. Is this going to make my body feel better or worse or neutral? And so I, I do that so I know what I'm putting in my body and what I'm going to be expecting from what I'm putting in my body. And then at the same time, I also give myself permission to enjoy whatever choice I make. So let's say in the past, like let's say my vice is chocolate, right? In the past, I would eat chocolate. Same here. Like, same yeah, here. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. 
it's chocolate. I love chocolate, right? And it's like that. So I would like, I'm like, oh, chocolate. I would have some chocolate and I feel really guilty about it. And like, that's probably one of the most toxic things you can do to yourself is to take something that you can really enjoy and then give yourself the worst, guiltiest, shameful feeling about something that you enjoy and whatnot. It's like, if you're going to have the chocolate, you need to fully enjoy that chocolate. So maybe if you're fully satiated, you're not going to have this impulse to do it again and again and again and again. And you can enjoy it like a natural, healthy experience. You know, having having your pleasures in life is is part of life. Once it becomes gluttonous, then it's like, okay, what's going on here? What it, what it, what's not getting fully satisfied? Let's pay attention to it. Bring the awareness back into the whole process. Let's shift this uh, cycle that I got in or this pattern that I got in. Yeah, I love it. And, and I just fell into this yesterday. Yesterday, I went to a movie theater. It was one of these bistro plexes where you can order food and it comes to your seat. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. It's, they have meals. And I knew I was doing that going in. So I made the foolish thought process I chose of, well, I just will wait till the movie theater an extra two hours to eat. Of course, you're starving then instead of eating earlier and not needing that, right? That, oh, I need to eat right now. So I get there and I go, oh, those things are so unhealthy, blah, blah. I'll go with a salad, but I need to treat myself. So I took the salad as bad, but healthy. Yeah. Without recognizing it. And sitting here now, I can go, oh, what if I'd said the salad's gonna taste so good? I'm gonna really enjoy that salad. Then I would not have needed to say, so... I'm going to add cheese curds to treat myself, which is what I did, which is the most, I mean, think about how stupid that is. I'm going to have a salad with fried cheese curds because here's the healthy option. Here's the tasty option. I could have just said, you know what? I, and I was talking about this with my trainer. He said, why didn't you just get the burger with like healthy things on it? It would have been better than the fried cheese curds because we play these silly mind games that we don't ask ourselves the right questions. Right. I think you said a key word there. What will I enjoy here? and feel good about there must be something on this menu that i'm going to enjoy and feel good about make that choice right and uh thanks for sharing that because uh, i think you you brought up a really important point to put something healthy in your body and hate it is gonna have just as bad of an effect of putting something unhealthy in your body and feeling guilty about it. Like it's, it's exactly the same dynamic. It it doesn't matter. The way we feel about the choices we make is about the most important thing that, uh, in our life because we can't get away from ourselves. So if we're in constant conflict with ourselves, that is the quality of life we're choosing conflicted and awful. (laughs) It's, It's just awful. So I think the emotional part is one of the first things to look at. And then the behavioral follows naturally rather than sitting there and having this internal conflict of like, oh, I have to make the right choice and I didn't do it this way. And it's like it's being so mean to ourselves. It's like, well, well, you know, I I, I grew up with a lot of, uh, you know, criticism, guilt and shame. Why am I? adding this into my life and continuing in my life. Like, why am I doing that to myself? Like, I I need to be a little bit nicer to myself. Like, okay, all right. So you could have chosen a little differently, but now we're here. So what are we going to do? What's going to, what's going to keep a smile on my face and, and the good hormones, the feel good hormones going out throughout my body. And that's going to help me uh, digest my food in a much healthier way than just having this major guilt trip the whole, the whole time. And I love that we're having this around food because you work in multiple avenues. So you're, you're a relationship therapist. So how do you, what are the questions that you ask people that you find have the most profound impact around mindfulness and your relationships? Oh, okay, great. Yeah. So I, I actually work with a specific program. Um, it, it's not my program, so I'm going I'm to mention it. It's called Anatomy of a Healthy Relationship by Dr. Ismail Yasai. 
and it's it's a very well developed program. And um, it starts with trust, respect, kindness, and caring. That's that's the basis and foundation. And how much of this are you bringing forward every step of the way in a relationship? How much trust do you put into it? How much of uh, and and if you're not putting 100% trust, where did that lack of trust come from? Is it from a past relationship? Is it because someone taught you to be uh, more mistrustful? Is it because of programming like media programming like people don't understand how strong media programming is you know the uh, a term one of my clients used was mind viruses and I was like yeah I could see that you know so like I see where you're coming from with that and so we always go through that so I, I like how you mentioned the programming so like reprogramming that in someone with a mindfulness approach like okay so if you're going to give yourself an opportunity to have a healthy committed a monogamous relationship can you bring trust into this 100%? Because if you can't, you're not setting yourself up for success. You know, can you bring respect into it? As in, can you respect who the person is just for who they are? Not trying to change them, not hoping that something's going to shift and and genuinely giving them the, the space to be themselves. We never got the space to be ourselves. We, we were always performing to some extent, either for a grade or for mommy and daddy's approval. That programming, are you bringing into the relationship as well? And how is that influencing and affecting it? You so want can to feel we, can we pause on that? Yeah. I think you yeah. bring up a really good question yeah. there. Not only can we trust them, is the other big part of this, do I see my own value? Do I see that that value in being able to trust myself and be that I am a catch, that I am this wonderful partner and I don't need to doubt that because that leads to all the mistrust in my partner, right? If I think I'm not worthy, they're going to go somewhere else. If right. I think I'm worthy, well, then what am I worried about? They got a great catch, right? So that's so, so hard for us to say. I am, right? My better half. People use that language all the time. I've done it myself when really we're both each other's great half, right? We're both each a great half of each other's relationship, not one more than the other, or you married up. You know, we joke around about that all the time in our culture nowadays. And I, well, once again, I've done that. We really shouldn't because there's mind programming going on there. It should be, wow, we're great for each other, with each other. Definitely, definitely. And uh, to also add to that, the, the trust uh, component, if one is going forward with a lack of trust, there's no going forward. It's literally being stuck in a hamster wheel. Uh, because someone, someone who's suspicious or lacks trust is going to have an issue with everything, 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 everything that's going to happen. So what if, what if you choose to say, all right, you know what? I trust this person. Even if, even if, because, like, you know, the, the darkest thoughts are they're cheating on me or there's someone else involved and, and stuff like that. Okay. What if that's the, the case? What can you do to control that? If this person doesn't want to wholly, fully be with you, then this person is not for you. That's it, you know? And so go forward, trust that and, and trust that this is a person that wants to be with you. You want to be with them. This is where relationships have changed. It's no longer a need-based relationship. It's a want-based relationship. People have the power of choice. And this is a global phenomenon. Before, it, we required it for economic purposes, for procreation, different socioeconomic status, caste systems, whatever you, you want to call it. It, it. it was a requirement that still exists to some extent. 
that still exists, but we're in a transition to a want-based relationship, which means I want to be with you because I like the way we feel together. I want to be with you because we grow well together. We have, um, we love each other. You know, those love-based relationships, that's, that's a luxury that we get now. Where in the past, there were always love stories like the Romeo and Juliet. Right. And there were always I, I, a tragedy. I love the language, I choose you. You choose me. We've chosen each other. Not that we need to be together or we have to be together. We choose to be together. I think that's such powerful language. And you brought up the global impact. So I want to get into that before we we wrap up today because you bring such expertise here in cultural strife that exists in today's society, especially for some in when it comes to Middle Eastern culture and U.S. culture. And, Mm -hmm. And you have expertise in that understanding. And so could you share with us what are tips, strategies that can help people overcome those misunderstandings or that strife that they have towards one culture or the other or multiple cultures in another? Okay, Uh, I would say start focusing on some of the best aspects of both worlds. So you don't have to accept everything fully the way it's handed to you. You can learn to cherry pick and develop and create. Learn to be the creator of your own life. That's what we're here for. We're here to create our life going forward. So let's say I'm Indian American and I grow up as an Indian American. I have very, very strong cultural requirements. You know, um, I could say seven generations into, uh, you know, certain areas the same practices are still being practiced. The same ceremonies are still being practiced. I mean, it's a very, very strong culturally um, practiced lifestyle and perspective. Great. Wonderful. What are the things you like about that? Continue with it now. So you've been uh, raised here several generations or first generation in the United States. What are some things that you enjoy about this? What are some things that you can relate with and take on? One of the best examples I give Most cultures are collectivistic cultures and the Western culture is considered more of an individualistic culture. There's good and bad in both a collectivistic culture. For example, they 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 grow and develop as a group and go forward. Not as much individual uh, personality is is given permission to have in an individualistic uh, culture. One person can go up really fast, but not always the strongest foundation to fall back on. So what about the best of both worlds? Can I learn to be my individual self in a group? And I think that would be like one of the healthiest blends to have with two different cultural backgrounds in in this kind of uh, example. I love it. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much. What are some resources people could reach out to to find for themselves to learn more about, about culture and mindfulness and working together? Well, um, acculturation in general, like they can look up uh, things regarding acculturation, what the differences are, assimilation. Now, that's a term a lot of people may have never heard before. So I like yeah. assimilation, but acculturation. Acculturation. Yeah, acculturation is the actual practice of becoming settled into a new culture or a new environment or a new society. I think that's a great place to start. Just I, to yeah, I, I love it. I'm, I love learning. And uh, this is, I'm learning here. So this is fantastic. Thank you. Cultural wise, I, cultural wise, it's been just a uh, personal practice and studies. I wouldn't say I've necessarily had one book uh, that's, that's brought light to me, but uh, mindfulness, one of the best mindfulness books that I learned, which I thought was super cool. It's called the presence process by Michael Brown. And um, it, it's a 10 week self-facilitated course into mindfulness and present moment awareness. That's what, that's what it is. It's a, it's a present moment awareness 
program. Is it, and is it like, in a, through a book or an online system? Uh, it's through a book. It's through okay. a book. We'll get that audiobook. link from you if that's okay. We're going to get that link yeah, from you sure. afterwards. We'll have that available for everyone listening and watching right now. Okay, Thank sure. you. I want to thank you so much, Ida, for joining us today. For anyone listening, remember, you can find out all about Ida Vazine at our website, everydaymindfulnessshow.com. Until next time, everyone out there, may you enjoy everyday mindfulness in your life. Three quick reminders. One, please subscribe to the Everyday Mindfulness Show on iTunes. Already subscribed? Then encourage others to join us by inviting them to subscribe to the show. Two, while on iTunes, download all the latest episodes. Three, reviews help more people find out about the show. Would you please go into iTunes and write a review? Doing so helps spread the mission of the show. Thanks. We appreciate you being a part of our vibrant, oftentimes silly, and always vulnerable community. If you have an idea, a thought, want to sponsor the show, or just want to say hi, send us an email at listen at everydaymindfulnessshow.com and check us out at everydaymindfulnessshow.com. Have a joyful, mindful week.